As Kyle said, my name is Craig. I come from Southern California, about an hour east of Los Angeles, and I am just so excited to be here with you this morning. Uh, I have, just so you know a little bit about me, I have a family. My wife's name is Kimmy. We've been married for seven years. We just celebrated our anniversary last week. And we have two kids that are the pride and joy of my life, a son named Bodie, uh, who is nine months old, and a daughter who is three and a half, and she has long brown hair, and my whole world revolves around my two kids. So it's a little bit about me. Also, we are in the middle of a collegiate weekend, and the theme is unholy history. And last week we talked about Ezekiel chapter 16, which is a passage that does not get read a lot in church because there's lots of blood, there's lots of guts, there's lots of sexism, there's lots of misogyny. And it's not real light fair, but we talked about how it's really inspiring because it's included within holy writings. And so Judah's history became holy once they included it rather than eliminated their shortcomings and failures as a nation. So this is part two of that series, and we're going to be looking at the prophet Amos, and then this afternoon at 2.30, we'll be looking at the prophet Isaiah and talking about unholy history and holy history and the reconciliation and inclusion of the shortcomings and the triumphs of our history. So with that in mind, let's turn to Amos chapter 5 and read what the prophet Amos says God said to him. Verse 21, God says these words to Amos. He says, I hate, I despise your festivals, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the offerings of well-being of your fatted animals, I will not look upon. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the melody of your harps, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream. Now, I have to tell you something this morning that people outside of ministry often don't understand. And that is when you're a pastor, people often like to quote the Bible back at you. To give you an idea of how this works, it's rarely verses that are affirming of who you are. They're typically verses that are saying things that you're not doing. And so Amos 5 is a passage that has been quoted at me quite a bit. And you may say, well, why has this passage been quoted at you personally, Craig? And I will tell you, because I like music a lot. And if you're wondering what kind of music I like, I, rather than describe it to you, I'd like to show you a picture of me leading worship with high school students. This is it. And as you can imagine, there are a lot of decibels involved. I like music that is passionate, that is a sonic assault of emotion, that is moving and inspiring, that changes the way you think and feel, and is really driven by the heart. That is music that I love. I mean, we've heard some of that this morning, and this music here is phenomenal. It's just great to be part of. But here's me with some high school students, me mentoring them. If you're wondering which one I am, I'm the guy with the stank face on the right, and that's me leading with guitar. And I've often led worship services like that, and people will bring their Bible up to me. They'll have it turned to Amos 5. And they said, Craig, have you read Amos 5? And I know it's coming. I say, I, I, yes, I have read Amos 5. And they start reading it to me. And the words out of their mouth are, God says, I hate, I despise your festivals. And they said, whatever just happened here was a festival, and it is, it is abhorrent before God, and he hates it. And I'm like, ah, oh, you know, it's kind of a lot, but yeah, I hear it. I hear this often. And this raises an interesting question. Is Amos 5 a condemnation of high decibel levels in worship services? 
And what I found is that the majority of mainstream American Christianity, represented by this traditional-looking church, will often hear this question and answer the question by saying, yes, turn it down for the Lord. That's what Amos 5 is talking about, right? But it doesn't stop there because people keep reading from Amos chapter 5, and they read the next verse, which reads, even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And they say, obviously, Craig, you care about the music that's presented, but this is an offering that's presented before God and rejected. And if you know anything about the text, he's actually referring to Leviticus chapter 1 and chapter 2, but this raises another question. Is Amos 5 a condemnation of unique and personal worship expressions in church? Should it be someone who can lead it in a way that only he or she can lead it, or should it be something that's much more standard? Traditional church will answer, yes, play the organ for the Lord. Like, that's the point of what Amos 5 is getting at. But then there's another verse that happens within Amos 5. And the other verse is this. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the melody of your harps. And they point at my guitar and say, see? And I say, this is a guitar. It's not a harp. They're very different. But they will point to this and often say, this is noise before God. We should get this out of church, which raises the question, is Amos 5, is Amos 5, my remote stopped working, um, that'll, that'll be a long time, so there we go, is Amos 5, a law stating reverence is more important than joy in a church service, and church will come back and often say, yes, suck the joy out of church for the Lord, right? In other words, a lot of our modern interpretation of what Amos 5 is, is it's this understanding that church should be a lot like the Philadelphia 76ers. Now, are there any Sixers fans in the house this morning? No, because they're terrible, right? Oh, we got one in the back. It's okay. It's okay. We're here for you. We're here for you. So the 76ers are not a real intimidating basketball team. And if you think that that's being kind, look at their logo. This is not intimidating in any way, shape, or form, an old white man playing basketball. But when you look at how bad the 76ers have been, you look at the last four years, these are their records, and people talk about how last year was a great year for the Sixers. They won 28 games and lost 54. It's been a rough stretch for Sixers fans. It's so bad, in fact, that if you were to go to their games, there are people that hold up signs uh, that pay homage to the rapper Drake. And Drake has a song that says, we started from the bottom, now we're here. But they hold up signs that say, we started from the bottom, and we still at the bottom. Hashtag pray for Philly. And what's crazy about the Sixers is that if you watch their games, there are real, live human beings in the stands paying money to watch this misery on the court. They might as well call the stadium the factory of sadness because it has produced nothing worthwhile. And yet people are paying their hard-earned money to sit down and watch the Philadelphia 76ers. And if you were to ask somebody, well, who are those people that would pay money to see this terrible team year after year after year? Someone would lean in and say, well, those, those are the real fans. They're through with that team through thick and thin, Right? They're through that team through thick and thin. No matter how good or how bad they are, they always show up. Because it's not about whether they win or they lose. It's about loyalty. In other words, we have this idea that whoever still pays money to go see the 76ers play must be a real fan, right? And yet when people hold up Amos 5 in the way they do, I have this sense that they're trying to say that church should be a lot like the 76ers. 
Look at it this way. Whoever still goes to the most boring, the most out of touch, the most mind-numbingly redundant, most obnoxiously vague and inoffensive church service must be a real Christian, right? To which church says, amen. That's it. And it's almost like if you go to one of those church services, you can see people sitting in the pews and like almost looking up at God and saying like, God, are you paying attention? Because I'm here and it's awful, but I'm here for you. And we have this understanding that Amos 5, Amos 5, we often understand to be saying, make sure that boring church separates real Christians from bandwagon Christians. That's how we hold it, how we interpret it. Another way of understanding this is that we understand Amos 5 to say, be suspicious of new instruments. When someone creates something new that wasn't around during biblical times, be very suspicious of it because it wasn't a biblically ordained instrument. Another understanding of Amos 5 is that church is about reverence, not joy. And let me tell you, nothing says fun or evangelism like going out there and saying, like, our church service isn't like those other church services. We don't have any fun. It kept going with Amos 5. Worship used to be better as an understanding. In other words, whatever happened back then in the past is what we need to return to because God was more present back then. The problem with that theology is that if God was more present, more available, better back then, then what does that say about God right now? So when it comes to Amos 5, there's a question that forms in our mind, which is there's this feeling that within Christianity that Amos 5 asks us to return to the past. And the question is, is Amos 5 dragging us backward? Or is there something else here? So often when I talk to Christians, there's this sense that God was more alive back then. And that is antithetical to the Christian message. I mean, after all, we worship a resurrected Savior. We have this saying that Jesus is Lord and Jesus is alive. But then we say, but he used to be more alive. Is Amos 5 trying to drag us back to a past and reaffirm this theology that in fact God was better back then? Or is there something else? Because when you look through recent history, just about 50 years ago, Amos 5 was quoted a lot. And not just in small ways, but in big, gigantic, earth-shaking, country-rattling ways. And it was quoted by one man in particular over and over and over again. This man's name was Martin Luther King Jr., and you are all familiar with his work. But I'd like to share with you a few times that he quoted Amos 5, and this is just a few of many. One time was in 1963, when Martin Luther King recognized that there was severe unjust segregation happening in Birmingham, Alabama. Now, in 1963, they had a population of 350,000. There was 60% white, 40% black. But when you look at that, you say to yourself, okay, that's not that big a deal. But when you look at how the economy of Birmingham worked, you say, oh, that is a major problem. There were zero black police officers, zero black firefighters, zero black bus drivers, zero black sales clerks, zero black store cashiers, and zero black bank tellers. Everyone that was black in Birmingham was forced to work in a steel mill in inhumane conditions with unfair wages. So Martin Luther King had this philosophy that you don't wait for injustice to rear its ugly head. You go in when it's there and it's present and injustice is already happening. And with nonviolent direct action, you create a scene and expose the injustice and bring it out into the open. 
And so he set up a march that was going to take place in Birmingham on the economic, the business district of Birmingham in 1963. Now, the people of Birmingham found out about this, and they did not want this injustice to be exposed because the people in power were profiting off of it. And so they changed the rules right before Martin Luther King showed up. The day before he showed up, in April 10, 1963, Birmingham made it illegal to protest and raise bail bonds from $300 to $1,200. It's a lot of money today. It was a lot more money back in 1963. But that did not deter the black community of Birmingham. They marched on the business district of Birmingham, and Martin Luther King was there, and he was arrested in April of 1963. It was the 11th time he was arrested, and the 11th time of 23, according to his wife. 23 times he was arrested, and this time in Birmingham was the 11th. Within that jail cell, Martin Luther King was given newspapers. And he read editorials, and there were numerous editorials that kept saying, man, Martin Luther King has this ego. He's all about himself. He just wants to be famous. He wants to get in the news. He just needs to put these differences aside and go toward unity and bring the country together because it's so fractured. In fact, most of these editorials labeled him as an extremist. And in response to this claim that he was an extremist, he wrote his most famous letter, it's called Letter from a Birmingham Jail, and I'd like to read a passage from, you, uh, from that to you this morning. And remember that this was written in a jail cell. He writes this, I was initially disappointed at being categorized as an extremist. As I continued to think about the matter, I gradually gained a measure of satisfaction from the label. Was not Jesus an extremist for love? Love your enemies, bless those that curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who despite you and persecute you. Was not Amos an extremist for justice? When he said, let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Was not Paul an extremist for the Christian gospel? I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. So the question is not whether we will be extremists, but what kind of extremists we will be. Will we be extremists for hate or for love? Will we be extremists for the per preservation of injustice or the extension of justice? In this dramatic scene on Calvary's Hill, three men were crucified. We must never forget that all three were crucified for the same crime, the crime of extremism. Two were extremists for immorality and thus fell below their environment. The other, Jesus Christ, was an extremist for love, truth goodness, and thereby rose above his environment. Perhaps the South, the nation, and the world are in dire need of creative extremists. And so rather than looking at Amos chapter 5 and saying, oh, it's dragging us backwards and we need to go back to what was, he says, isn't that what we're supposed to be? Isn't Amos 5 the kind of Christian we should be in America in 1963? Well, a few months after this, after he's released from jail, Martin Luther King marches on Washington to show the economic disparity with cross-racial lines. This happened in 1963, and it was his most famous speech. It's the I Have a Dream speech that was given in the shadow of the Lincoln Memorial, and it's without a doubt the speech that you've heard over and over again. But within those words, he once again quotes Amos, and he quotes it this way. He says, there are those who are asking the devotees of the civil rights. When will you be satisfied? Well, we can never be satisfied 
as long as the Negro is the victim of the horrendous evils of police brutality. We can never be satisfied as long as our bodies, heavy with the fatigue of travel, cannot gain lodging in the motels on the highways and the hotels in the cities. We can never be satisfied as long as a Negro's mobility is from a smaller ghetto to a larger one. We cannot be satisfied as our children are robbed of their adulthood and stripped of their dignity by signs stating for whites only. We cannot be satisfied when a Negro in Mississippi cannot vote and a Negro in New York believes that he has nothing for which to vote. No, no, we are not satisfied and we will never be satisfied until justice rolls down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream. And at this platform, Martin Luther King stands up and guess what he quotes? Amos, in the most famous speech in American history, he says, you want to know where we're trying to go? We're trying to go where Amos told us to go. Of live a life where justice rolls down like waters, where righteousness just rolls down like a mighty stream. But a few years after this, he brought up Amos again. In 1965, Alabama, it was legal for everybody to vote. However, the Alabama government did not protect the rights of all voters. And so Alabama introduced all sorts of voting vouchers and other injustices that happened that made it difficult for people of color to vote in Alabama local elections. Because of this, Selma came around, and if you've seen the movie Selma, it's a fantastic movie, but the whole premise is that to raise awareness that this injustice did not happen, there is a march from Selma to Montgomery that happened, and it's about 50 miles, and it happened over five days. But before this march happened, there was an initial attempt at the march in which police brutality was exposed on national television and led to federal legislation to protect the right to protest and to protect the right to vote. But in 1965, they marched from Selma to Montgomery after these protections were in place. They went right up to the steps of the Capitol in Alabama, and from the steps of the Capitol in Alabama, Martin Luther King gave one of his greatest speeches called, How Long? Not Long. And in that sermon, he said these words, I know there is a cry today in Alabama. When will Martin Luther King and these civil agitators get out of our community and allow Alabama to return to normalcy. But I have a message I'd like to leave with Alabama this evening. That is exactly what we don't want, and we will not allow it to happen. For it was normalcy in Marion that led to the brutal beating and murder of Jimmy Lee Jackson. It was normalcy on Highway 80 that led to state troopers using tear gas and billy clubs and horses on unarmed human beings who were simply marching for justice. It was normalcy in Birmingham that led to the death of four innocent girls. It was normalcy in Selma, Alabama that led to the beating and murder of the Reverend James Reeb. It is normalcy all throughout this country that leaves the Negro perishing on a lonely island of poverty in the midst of a vast ocean of material prosperity. It is normalcy throughout Alabama that prevents the Negro from registering to vote. No, no, we will not allow Alabama to return to normalcy. The only normalcy that we will settle for is a normalcy that recognizes the dignity and the value of all of God's children. 
The only normalcy we will settle for is a normalcy where justice rolls down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream. The only normalcy we will settle for is a normalcy of true brotherhood, true peace, and true justice. And in that sermon, Martin Luther King once again says, you want to know what we're going for? What Amos talked about 2,500 years ago. That's what we want. That's the future. That's the direction. And you may say to yourself, well, okay, that's Martin Luther King, and that was a long time ago. It was 50 years ago. But come on, Craig, like, that's just one person. Is there anyone else that thought this? And I would say, yes, there was. There was a woman named Maya Lin who's an architect. She's very famous. She designed the Vietnam Veterans Memorial in Washington, D.C., and it is the greatest design war memorial I've seen in my lifetime. But she was recently commissioned by the Southern Poverty Law Center to redesign their entrance. And so the Southern Poverty Law Center went to Maya and said, hey, would you redesign this and would you have it reflect uh, the civil rights movement within America? So this is what she came up with. She designed the entrance, not the building. And as she was thinking about this building, she thought about what this building would represent. And I have to say that what she did, I thought was brilliant. And you may say, well, how brilliant do you think Myelin is? Are you a big fan of Myelin? I would say, yes, I am, because my daughter is actually named Myelin Hadley. <laughs> so I've taken fan to a new level. <laughs> Myelin is one of my great heroes. And as she was designing this, she designed two elements for the entrance of the Southern Poverty Law Center. The first was a water table in which you walk around and you see the civil rights movement unfold in a timeline. And the second is a fountain, and on that fountain, she says the words of Amos as quoted by Martin Luther King Jr., which is, let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream. Now, in an interview, she was asked, why did you choose this quote? Why did you choose this table? And she talks about the verse from Amos, and in there she says these words, what the Southern Poverty Law Center is struggling with is the ongoing, is the future. There's still injustices happening, and the Southern Poverty Law Center is committed to fighting these racial injustices in America today. But then she says, so I needed something to connect the past, which is the history and the water table, with the future, which is the quote from Amos. And at this point, you're saying, wait a second, is Amos 5 a yet-to-be-realized vision for the future? Or is Amos 5 an archaic demand to return to the past? Which one is it? Because it's a big difference, and yet the times that I've encountered church, there is an overwhelming sense that it's to push us back toward the past. So if you were to look at yourself today and understand that there's the past before you and the future before you, and you have church on one side saying to you these words, Amos 5 is over here, back here, and Amos 5 wants us to go back to this was, you look then what's in the future, and you look at people like Martin Luther King and Maya Lin saying, no, actually, Amos 5 is over here. And as Jesus talks to us about how you will know my followers by the fruit of their spirit, ask yourself, what is, the, what is this theology leading to eventually? Because what Martin Luther and Maya Lin have to say about where this leads to is rather fascinating. The idea that's behind Amos 5 is this. It will go toward the only normalcy that we will settle for is the normalcy that recognizes the dignity and worth of all of God's children. That sounds like heaven to me. But if you believe it's in the past, you want to know the fruit that bears from that idea? It is simply this. We need to get drums out of church. 
And if that's the case, then I have a question for you. What does our church sound like? Because I believe it sounds like this. My brothers, my sisters, the question I want to leave you with this morning is this. What does our church sound like? What does it sound like? Because when we look at some of the injustices that are happening, this is not something that came from the past. This is something that we struggle with today. A very significant injustice is happening right now when you talk about the F-35 fighter jet. This thing is way over budget and way late on delivery, and yet all of our tax dollars are paying for it. How much is it paying for it? It's set to the tune right now of $1.45 trillion. It is way over budget. It was just a disaster. They keep trying to redesign it. It's just not going well. And yet it's your money and my money, and it's going toward a weapon. And we all here subscribe to the Bible. And when it comes to the Bible, Isaiah's vision for what heaven is is where we take our weapons and we beat them into plowshares where we can grow food. And we look at this, and you say to yourself, well, how much is $1.45 trillion? I will tell you. It's enough to pay for every college student's tuition in America today and for the next 23 years. It is a lot of money, and yet we spend it on this jet that still has yet to fire a weapon while airborne. $1.45 trillion. This is an injustice that is happening within America today. And yet, when I talk about churches, churches most often avoid this topic because they think it's too political. But we are happy to talk about other things. We ask questions like this. Will God allow someone into heaven if they were wearing jewelry? And if we ask this question, rather than talking about the injustices of economic war spending, what does our church sound like? Because I believe this question makes our church sound like this. As Christians, we have this man who we also say was the Son of God. His name is Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ said many things while he was alive, but there's nothing more difficult to actually put into practice than what is found in Matthew chapter 5 when he says these words. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. Have you ever tried to love your enemies? It's difficult. It's difficult. And yet that's what Jesus asks us to do. It's hard and it's challenging and it takes discipline and dedication and a constant focus of believing that the person that hurts you is also one of God's children. But then at the same time, we found that within church, we don't actually believe this. Case in point, I was talking, uh, I was giving a sermon once at a church and I talked about communion. And I talked about how communion reminds us of what we all have in common, which is the body and blood of Jesus Christ. And how it is here at the table of communion, we put our differences aside, we break bread, and we drink the wine or the grape juice, and we sit down and we say, well, remember, we are one in the body of Christ, even if we disagree. So I talked about how it was the place where the drummer could sit next to the organist, where the skier could sit next to the snowboarder. And then I said, it's the place where the literal creationist can sit next to the evolutionary theist. And let me tell you, I got a few comments. Because people came to me and they said these words, we're pretty sure that God wouldn't want us to share a meal with people who don't believe in a literal six-day, continuous, contiguous, 24-hour period. And I heard that, 
And I thought about the verse, love your enemies, and the unwillingness to break bread with someone who thinks something different than you about the origins. And you want to know what your church sounds like, our church sounds like? It sounds like this. In 2015, some research was done, and the American Association of University Women found that on average, for the same job as a man, a woman makes about 80% of what the man makes. This is called the gender pay gap, and it is an injustice. How is it fair to pay someone differently based on the gender that they have? And so people said, well, it's getting better, Craig. You have to remember it's come a long ways, and we're making it. We're doing the best thing that we can. And yes, we're on pace to close the gender pay gap. And if you look at the numbers, you can say to yourself, yes, we are. But the fact is it won't be 100% and 100% for men and women doing the same work until the year 2152. This has to stop. This is an injustice. It's discrimination. And we talk about the church and what the church is willing to talk about. We often say, yes, we're willing to talk about gender issues, but the gender issues are very different. The gender issues I've found that churches are very willing to talk about are this. We need to make sure that women wear longer skirts so that the men aren't distracted during church. To my brothers, can I talk to you for a second? Can we grow up? Like, I mean, you know, if someone shows their kneecap, can you just look a woman in the eye? Are we men or are we boys? And the issues that we talk about are often this idea that we just need to make sure that we can control what women wear. And we men have been telling women for too long how they should dress. Let's stop it, shall we? And yet when we focus on this and the church obsesses about this gender issue, I have a question for you. What does our church sound like? One of the greatest injustices happening in America right now is when you look at the prison system and who's in the prison system and who we continually place there as a nation. And this is one of the biggest revealers of racism within America today. Because if you look at the prison system, you realize that 12% of the American population is black. And today there are 2.3 million prisoners in America. One million prisoners of those two million are black. In other words, 43% of the prison population is black, even though they make up 12% of the American population. It gets worse when you look closer. One in three black men will go to prison in their lifetime. One in 17 white men will go to prison in their lifetime. And some people can say, well, that's because they need to behave differently. I would say, no, it's because we have a systemic problem in which the justice system is slanted toward people who have more money as well as have skin that is lighter. It is wrong, it's evil, it's horrendous evil. Keeps going, 14 million whites use illegal drugs, 2.6 million blacks use illegal drugs, white use illegal drugs at five times the rate of blacks and yet they are convicted at a rate of 10 times the rate of whites. I've spent most of my life in white churches, and I will sum up everything they've said with one slide about this injustice, and that is this, nothing. So often churches are afraid to confront issues of justice because they're afraid to really bring up what it is that God is leading us toward. 
and a justice system that is stacked against people of color is an injustice system. And we, as a church, must stand up and put an end to this injustice. And if we don't, and the question I have is, what does our church sound like? When Amos writes 2,500 years ago the words, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream, my question is, what does this church sound like? Does it sound like a leaky faucet? Or does it sound like a roaring, rushing river that constantly fights for justice? Looks at where the injustice of a country, of a city, of a place is happening and says we are called as Christians to fight for that justice because we are being pulled into a future. A future where we recognize the dignity and worth of all of God's children. And that is the justice that sounds like a mighty rushing water and righteousness that sounds like a mighty stream. May our church sound like this.